I'm ready to choose units where I have a chance of getting a license. I call this process big picture research because a state unit or area is just the big picture. Here are the resources I use to paint the big picture. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Live from Mule Deer Country, this is Robbie Denning. Yep, we're on mountaintop right now, midday. Only way I'm going to get a podcast out to you guys is if I bring the little handy recorder along in the pack, and I did. Uh, so, here we are. You might hear some flies buzzing, you might hear a horse whinny. Uh, but that'll just add to the reality of the episode. Let's see. Let's give you kind of a scouting update here. It's uh, early August, and let's talk about the weather first. So coming off of this hard winter, I've written about this in my articles before. The only upside is you get out of the drought, typically. And we are out of the drought right now. It's looking really good. I've scouted a couple hundred square miles of my home state and uh, one other state so far, and everything is looking really good as far as habitat's concerned. And I had Randy Larson, BYU professor, on an earlier podcast this year, and it was very well received because he shone the light on things that even I hadn't considered. And he said it, he said, I would rather have a hard winter than a long drought. And I, I, I see what he means, that these droughts, I think that's what's really hurting us right now, um, is this drought we were in, in, in certain parts of the West, uh, the last couple of years, that's just hard on deer, and then you get a hard winter on top of it, and it feels like the nail in the coffin, but it's not, it's, it's just a cycle they go through, and I'll give you some numbers here in a minute on what I'm seeing. And, uh, but I can tell you this, the does are fat. I'm seeing, even seeing twin fawns in some of the winter kill units, which is great. Uh, so they didn't all winter hard. And I always keep a, a journal on what I'm seeing so I can compare back to previous years. And this year it's hard to compare back to last year because I had a tag in a state that gave me access to some pretty good units and I had already scouted pretty hard by late July and uh, looked at a lot of bucks and so it's, it's hard to compare this year to last year because I can't hunt there this year and so uh, just my you know run-of-the-mill tags pretty much anywhere anybody anybody can hunt especially residents in these different states um, is is what I'm looking at this year and my, I'm down about 40% on buck numbers uh, as a whole. And, uh, but if I take that opportunity out that I had last year, I'm not down that much. Um, I might even be up a little bit compared to, to last year in some of these lesser units. So the buck numbers seem to be there, but this is, this is what I'm not seeing is I'm just not seeing any 
uh, big deer. I've seen two bucks that I would say are probably in that five or six year old range, but just looking at their body, um, just, man, when you see an, an older deer and you've just been looking at younger deer and I'm not talking antlers, I'm talking body. Uh, man, that's often the first thing you see is just, wow, he's a big body deer. I have seen two of those, but they kind of had crappy racks and different guys I'm talking and talking to are saying that, and I'm seeing this too, or I was, that they were behind on growth and uh, they, they seem to start really late this year. But these two bucks, it, it's hard to nail down that that's what it was because they were just your kind of average 22 to 25 inch wide bucks and even on good years i mean you'll see i mean i've seen eight nine year old deer i killed an eight-year-old deer that had a 24 inch spread they don't all get wide and so um you know i i can say i've seen two older age class bucks but i have not seen any big antler bucks uh, do what you want with that it's just you know a, a small sample size of me and, uh, you know, everybody's going to get different results, but I can tell you this, it's better than what I thought it was going to be, uh, after we went through that hard winter and just what everybody was seeing, how long it hung on. It's, it's better than I thought. And, uh, and the habitats just look great. So maybe it's different in your state. You know, I'm, I'm heavily in the intermountain West, you know, kind of Northern to central Rockies type stuff. But, uh, but I, I'm excited to see the carryover that we did have. And uh, remember, deer are cyclical, and uh, we, we're probably at the bottom of a cycle right now in numbers. And if we could just get some weather to cooperate, some, some rain and no, no prolonged drought. We don't need easy winters because that's what causes drought. You know? But we, we just get out of the harsh winter patterns that we've had. Uh, it, 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 the future's bright, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So um, let's see, elk update. I, I want to give you an elk update because I've been saying this for like 10 years elk are everywhere now you can take out the few units that have been uh, impacted by wolves i realize there's some places that they're really down and they're really hurting i you know this is not a, a broad blanket um, summary but i'm seeing more elk in more places and the trend just continues even places where there were no elk to speak of 20 years ago I'm seeing plenty now. Now, by plenty, I mean I would go hunt it if I was an elk hunter. I'm seeing bachelor herds of bulls, um, nice bulls, mature bulls, no, no giants. Um, it's not really the type of country that grows giants, although it could, I think, uh, if it had a, had a bigger herd of elk, which it, it seems to be headed that way. Um, and like one place I went last week, I saw a herd of cow elk and spike elk. That's kind of what's in the herds right now and calves. And there was probably 30 in that herd. And I've spent a lot of time in that unit on and off over 20 years. I've never seen that once. Now it does, again, I'm just a sample size of one. All right. Maybe that herd of 30 was there the whole time and you just didn't see them. But when I'm seeing a herd of 30 and then, you know, over across the canyon is a bachelor herd of five bulls. And then, you know, driving out at night, you know, two bulls run across the road where 20 years ago, I just, I heard people talk about elk, but I just never saw them. So I don't know, but they, but like I always say, no better time to be an elk hunter than right now. So uh, do your research. Uh, I reviewed a book last year 
or at least talked about it on the forums by, um, I, I actually reviewed his Mulder book. It's by Dan Brannigan. He did a podcast with Jordan. If you go way back in the archives, you'll see there's a podcast in there with Jordan. Um, when we reviewed his book, um, I, I did, I reviewed his book on the blog. She interviewed him and then he came out with another book, uh, on elk. The first one was on Mulder. Um, and it, it, the, the name of it, if you're interested, I highly recommend you buy it. It's got good information and it's not just about big Mulder hunting. It's, it's kind of all deer hunting, and, and which, which is what makes it good. And uh, it's on Amazon. It's called So You Want to Hunt the West for Mule Deer. Now what? Uh, well, he came out with a book on elk and a similar title. I think it's, I think it's the same. So You Want to Hunt the West for Elk, I think. Uh, he might he might have had a subtitle in there, you know, Low Country Elk. And that's really what it's about. It's just how these elk herds have just expanded so much. And he goes clear back into the journals of Lewis and Clark and a lot of a lot of historical stuff in there and how these elk are just I'm saying invading. I don't know if that's the word, but you know they are they are returning to uh, habitats that they have not been in for don't quote me, it's in the book, maybe a hundred years, uh, maybe longer. Uh, and that's what I'm seeing too. That's what I'm seeing too. So I, if you're, if you're an elk hunter, there's no better time to be an elk hunter and they're not all in the wilderness. If I wanted to get away from people and I wasn't worried about hunting, you know, the furthest highest peak, uh, there's, there's elk in a lot of places that are, uh, a little, little more easy to access. You know, we're talking river bottoms, you know, BLM outside of private, you know, that's the kind of stuff I'm seeing them on where I didn't even used to see them. Uh, and, um, I saw an Instagram post today and I, I can't even, I can't think who it was. I didn't know the guy. Um, I've seen him on Instagram before, but, um, he had st uh, stalked and spotted a bull elk in its bed. Like, like you would a mule deer. I think he shot it at 13 yards. I'm hearing more of that now too. Uh, go watch Tony Treach's film from last year. Um, it was, it's on the rock slide channel, high desert. Uh, bulls, like, oh, forgive me on, on, the, on the name. You'd think I'd know that. It's on our channel. Uh, spot and stock bulls like mule deer. And, and I think it's because they're getting into terrain. You know, it, it's pretty hard to, talk, to to spot and stock a big bull elk on a 10,000-foot peak, uh, you know, and he's with a herd of cows. But when, you know, they get out into some of this broken country that's typically been <laughs> occupied by mule deer, and you can see them, and it's not a 45-degree slope, you're crawling, you're, you're, clawing to get across, um, you can, uh, use mule deer spot and stock tactics. And, uh, so that's kind of neat. Uh, you know, something to think about. Uh, no, I'm not converting to elk hunting. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with what I love, but, uh, but they are a pretty cool animal and I'm seeing a lot of them. Let's see. We're also going to, uh, do some more from the book today, but before we do that, uh, I want to do a gear update for you guys. I haven't talked much about my bow since uh, we wrapped up the cold bow back in, uh, what was that, May, and then I had Bill from Iron Will on the podcast, and I wanted to try his arrows. I've been shooting the gold tip kinetic, kinetic pierce for years. I was really happy with them. Great shooting arrow, um, but uh, they're a little tender, and it took me a couple of years to kind of realize, you know, I was, I was, I was bending a lot of them and I'm talking the outsert on them. I think it's a half out is what they call it. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for me to buy 12 arrows in June and by, you know, August, I'm down to six, six of them. 
Uh, I'm not breaking the carbon. I'm just I'm just bending the 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 outsert, and I just thought that was the the game that we play. But you know, talking to Bill, you heard some of that on that podcast, and then talking to him off of the podcast. I went to the Iron Will Custom. I don't have all the specs in front of me. I'm sitting in scout camp here, so um, but they're not a micro diameter. They're kind of a mid diameter. Those. Uh, kinetic pierces from gold tip were a micro diameter so these are a little little beefier arrow but again i wasn't breaking the carbon that really was not the problem at all with the gold tip you know they were super straight they spun straight uh they were they, they were a good arrow um i, I love the micro diameter i had tested those multiple times you can go look at our, our rock slide channel and see that i tested those in high winds like 30 40 mile an hour winds and the micro diameter did drift less but um i went to the to to this shaft that, that bill's got at iron will and it's you know it's kind of a medium uh shaft and uh very happy with it i think on my arrow counter i have a little arrow counter on my quiver so i i log every arrow i just click it click it in so i know how many arrows i shoot a year my goal is to shoot at least a thousand a year on a bad year i only shoot 500 on a good year i shoot over 2000 um the, and so I think I had a thousand on my counter when I got my arrows from Bill and now I'm up to about 1600. So I got 600 shots over six arrows. Not a single one is damaged. Um, I, I have stuffed them through, uh, some butts at the archery range, uh, uh Blackfoot rivers where I shoot guys, it's time for some new butts. Uh, but anyways, uh, I've, I've, I've messed up the veins a little bit, but I haven't torn them off. And, uh, that I, I had had that problem with the gold tips, which is probably because I was assembling the gold tips or my pro shop was like, I don't want to blame that on gold tip. That was probably my crappy, uh, job of, of applying veins. Are you the type of guy that like you you add like nine grains of glue to your arrow? Like you lose your FOC because you put so much glue on your arrow. Well, well that was me for a long time. And, uh, and over the years I've gotten better at it watching, uh, the, the guys do it from uh, downwind archery where I shoot and, uh, they use less glue. Well, then I went completely the other way and now, you know, not enough glue and, uh, shoot my arrow and then go down there and the fletches land on the ground. So, uh, but I'll take the blame for all that. But on the iron wheels, uh, I have not, uh, torn a, torn a vein off yet. I have not. And, um, tough arrow they're all spinning true i have an arrow spinner pine valley arrow spinner i spin all my arrows regularly because I, 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 you can bend uh i think these i think these are deep six gosh forgive me bill you think i'd know this i just shoot i don't know i just shoot um and uh they haven't bent anything on the outserts or whatever whatever they're called in that system everything is spinning true always spin your arrows uh get an arrow spinner it's worth it you you'll be surprised how fast uh, a bent arrow will sneak into your to your set you know i've, I've had that happen before and I finally realize, hey, what's wrong with this arrow? I always number my arrows. This is number three. Why, why is it? Oh, and I look at it, I spin it, and yeah, it's got a bent tip. Uh, so anyways, I've uh, been shooting those happy. They're very durable. and uh, But it didn't really improve my groups. And so backing up a little bit, I, I bought a new Matthews uh, Phase 4 29 back in March. And that's what I show, shot in the cold bow. We set it up at the pro shop. I was really happy with it. It was shooting a good arrow. But if you listen to that, 
that podcast I did with Bill, he talked me into doing uh, bear shaft. And uh, I had never done bear shaft. Uh, my, my pro shop, uh, Bud at Downwind, he had done it too, but because they work with the masses, you know, most guys are not demanding uh, the, the, the level of accuracy that, that you, a bear shaft can produce. So he, he knew about it. He helped me with a little bit, but I took the information Bill gave me, went down there for one evening, just hired Bud to help me. We spent about an hour with my my bow. I had already done bear shaft at home following the uh, recipe Bill gave me. Um, and I was at 30 and 40 yards. I had a bear shaft hitting not close enough. I think Bill wanted me at a couple inches. I was more like four to six inches. Um, and so I, I went and worked with Bud for that evening. And we got that down to where at 30 yards, I've got a bear shaft hitting within just an inch and a half, two inches if I do my job. And at 40 yards, maybe two to three inches. And, uh, and he, we did that with some uh, rest tuning and everything that Bill had told me about in that podcast and it worked and my it shrunk my groups it really did so when i finished the cold bow i was uh three uh three arrows out of five arrows in the vitals at 55 yards is what i finished the cold bow at and now i'm either five for five or four for five you know and and this isn't truly cold bow this is more like first arrow of the day i just i I have a little notepad i write it down where did my first arrow of the day hit and i always shoot that 55 yards and man i had a string of them of about six or seven days where i was just nailing it and uh as bill and i had talked uh, about in the podcast i was shooting uh uh, severs last year and i've shot ironwell broadheads very happy with them they're they're great fixed blade but i had just gone to the just to give them a try and they were shooting a little bit better than the than the fixed blade but i can't say that now and and that, that was bill's point in the podcast if you get your bow really tuned you know you should get great flight out of out of a fixed blade so um i haven't decided if i'm going to shoot the fixed blades for hunting season or, or not um and part of it is, do I have time to order some? It, it really, this time of year, I'm burning it at both ends. You know, between work, getting to see my family, and being in the hills as much as I can. Uh, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm recording a podcast right now with my feet up on a log, uh, sitting in the woods, looking at some great mule deer country. Because um, this is what I'm doing this time of year. So to even just place an order, sometimes it just doesn't get done. Is what is what happens. So if I have enough iron wheels, I'll probably hunt with them. But if I don't, I, I think I have enough uh, severs from last year. I haven't decided yet. But my whole point in all that is the bare shaft tuning was worth it. It was a little intimidating for me, but it was worth it. So if you want to try it, go back to the podcast uh, I did with Bill, the episode I did with Bill. It's called Getting Great Arrow Flight. Listen, listen to that. If you've never done it before, maybe get a mentor. Essentially, that's what I did. I just went down to my pro shop. I mean, I, I toyed with it a little bit, but I didn't start adjusting the rest until I had somebody there with me because, you know, I'm, I'm a deer hunter, not a bow tuner. And uh, it was worth it. I, I definitely can tell I'm shooting better. And I don't think it was just you know volume of arrows you know it's later in the summer so i'm a better shot i I, don't, I really don't think that's what it was um because even though i you know i had shot probably a thousand arrows before uh, i put i put uh bill's arrows on my bow you know i, I felt like i had kind of hit the glass ceiling on my personal abilities you know i don't think my my shooting improved i really do think it was the it was the bear shaft tuning and, and i've just got my my bow was tuned before but now as my pro shop said, now it's super tuned. 
Okay, so that's my Matthews, and then let's see. Uh, well, one other thing on that. The the Matthews I ordered, the Phase 429, um, I bought it with the Trueball site. Now, it doesn't say Trueball on it, but that's who makes them for Matthews. Um, it's their five-pin uh, uh, fixed-pin site. It's not a slider. And I really liked it, but I figured out, if you've listened to the podcast before, I'm colorblind, and just their shade of red they use on their pin uh, they're 0.19 pins or 0.019 um, are are it's it's just off enough I have a super hard time seeing it I can see the yellow pretty good uh, and I can see the green very well but the red oh my gosh it's like I can't see the end of my pin and I should have done something sooner about it I just wasn't thinking and um, and I and I finally uh, pulled a bow back that had all green pins and uh, yellow pins and I was like oh gosh what am I doing messing around with a red pin well these are fiber optic pins so you can't just swap them out um, like a non-fiber optic you know it's got the fiber optic comes around wraps around your site uh, your site housing so that you can gather more light so you can't just change out a pin um, I, I talked to the guys at Trueball they said yeah if you want to mess around for hours you can't uh, you know there's a few guys that do it but uh, I just went in and bought a new site and uh, it's on its way. I hope it makes it here in time. And I went with all green. And this was also after consulting with Les Welch. He's a big Matthews guy. He's on our staff. And uh, and, he, and that's what he does. He orders, orders custom sites with custom colors. I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, you can see I'm, you know, I'm kind of a kind of green when it comes to archery, even though I've been doing it for 30 years. I've, I, I put my time in deer hunting. So, uh, but anyways, I bat, that's, that's coming and I uh, hope to have that swapped out that I can see all my pins. I'm shooting 30, 40, 50, 60 yard pins. I do have a 70 on there. It's just kind of for playing at long range. I do not plan on shooting a deer anywhere near that. And unless there's just something wrong, I've already hit a deer. Um, but my 30, 40, 50, 60 has served me well. And that came from years of archery hunting and just kind of running the math. I've only had a couple of bucks uh, give me opportunities under 30 yards. Um, I've never had a shot under 30 yards. Uh, for those of you that might have been on Rock Slide back in 2012 through 14, when I was chasing Jalapeno, that big 215 buck, I did have him at 18 yards one day, but I never got a shot. And just um, that's the closest I've ever been to, to a big mule deer during archery season. So I ditched the 20, um, and I just go with 30, and then um, I, I – I, I'm shooting 65 pounds. I haven't, I haven't done velocity on my bow. Um, I'm probably 270, uh, but it's 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 pretty easy to just hold heart with a 30 yard pin and 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 hit hit lungs. Um, so that that's what I do. And, and part of it is is you know if you watch my film from this year. Um, I've, I, or excuse me, not my film, the, the CBC from this year. I've used the wrong pin before. I used the wrong pin on a big buck in 2014. So cluttered pins, cluttered mind, it just does not do well with me. But I don't want to go to a single pin and dial either because of, you know, everything happens so fast when you're hunting deer that I'm just chicken to do that. I, I know it would clean up my sight picture. I'm, I'm really tempted, but I've, I've also had, you know, I've sat on deer and stalked in deer and, in, and, and had situations where would have, if I would have dialed, I would not have got a shot because the deer moved. Uh, in fact, last year, that's what would have, would have happened that I had that buck at 24 yards and he just got a 
out of his bed and walked straight away from me and he stopped at 39. And, um, so I would have had to redial or, you know, heavily estimate with a, with a, with a imaginary pin gap because you only have one pin. So anyways, I'm going on and on, but that's, that's why I've gone with the 30 through 60. All my money shots are probably going to be in that 40 to you know, 55, 60 range, somewhere in there. That seems to be where deer show up the most. Um, so anyways, that's, uh, that's where I'm at with, uh, with my gear. Um, also, uh, you probably heard the ad too. Uh, MagView is a, uh, sponsor of the podcast of the Rockcast, but I've been using MagView for over a year. I started with them last year. I did a big review on them, video review, um, uh, along with Tony Treach. I shouldn't say I did it. We all did it together. Um, and, uh, you can see that on our YouTube channel and, uh, it's, it's a great minimalist system. All it is on a mag view, it's a steel plate that adheres to the back of your phone. It's not a magnetic plate. It's a steel plate. Okay. So there's no magnet on your phone. And then there's a magnetic ring that goes on to your spotter and, the ring, this is for their, um, their oh, their S1, I think it is, uh, is there for their spotter. They also have a B1, which is for binoculars. They do both. But uh, that ring fits most spotters. There's a couple out there that doesn't. They can tell you which ones. But um, so I, ha- I started with MagView last year, and I had it on my Swaro uh, 65 and uh, ran it all summer, uh, loved it, loved how quick it was, uh, loved how light it was. That, that, that's what I love. But the thing I liked about it the most is it was always on my phone. I did not have to have a special case for my phone. So last summer I was running an iPhone 11 and uh, I had the steel plate on there and uh, it was on there all the time. You don't take it off. You don't even, you don't even know it's on there. It's so thin. Um, my phone uh, started dying uh, right before hunting season last year. So I, I jumped up to an iPhone 14 and um, I just uh, it, mine came with two plates. I'm assuming everybody's does. Um, and I just put, put the, put the plate on my iPhone 14 and just kept hunting. Well, this is what I like about it is the plate just stays on your phone. So, you know, I did winter scouting using, using my phone. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, then I get into the spring and basically when deer don't have any antlers, I, I finally have to go back to work. So, uh, didn't think anything about digiscoping, none of that stuff. And this happens every year. My first trip out, I am just a, a hot mess. I got gear spread everywhere, forgot half my things, you know, everything from coffee cups to digiscoping to, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just not all together. It gets scattered. I'm not the most organized guy. And, and, and so, seems like every year when it came to digiscoping, I was missing something. Well, this year it would have happened. It would have happened. I remember I went out, I think it was like the first of June. I was watching some deer up on a hillside and I thought, oh man, I should, I should digiscope these. And my first thought was, oh gosh, do I have my gear? Well, I did because the ring stays on your spotter all the time. And, and it's a ring and it's also got, um, a, a flap on it, a really good flap, by the way, better than the, anything stock that I've seen on Swarovski. Um, on Zeiss, on any any of the high end stuff I've used, it's 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 a magnetic flap and it closes. It's really nice. So, anyways, that that just stays on your spotter, and uh, and so sure enough, I pulled my phone out. There was a magnetic plate. I was I was able to uh, uh, not miss that opportunity, and so. Um, 
here it is, uh, August, and I finally got my Swarovski ATC. That's their new small spotter, their compact spotter. It's a 56 millimeter objective and uh, 17 to 40 power. They nailed it. I was asking uh, Dean uh, at Swarovski just years ago, like, why do you guys not own the compact market for spotters. You know, I'd send him an email or mentioned it a couple times. Just, I just always thought, why is there, why does Swaro not have a high-end spotter in their compact range? Well, they do now. So I got mine a week ago. All right, and uh, took it out the next day. Um, had a, had a, had a trip planned. Um, actually, went on a scouting trip with my mom. That was fun. She's she's a horse horse lady, so um, I probably could care less about deer, but she likes to go to mule deer country on her horses. So I took her last week. Threw in that little spotter. I think it comes in at thirty four ounces. Um, all the big spotters are like in that kind of mid forty range, you know. So you're saving quite a few ounces, but the compactness of it is is really where it shines. Um, and uh, so. I got it out and I got to use it a morning and an evening. And then the next morning I used it, did some digiscoping on some bulls uh, with it. I was very happy with it. Matt Cashel, uh, our optics writer, he published a written review on this. It's on Rockslide. And that's one of the things he says is that the ATC is very well adapted to digiscoping. It just has to do with, you know, field of view and um, eye relief, all those things that, you know, make for a great digiscoping experience. And oh, by the way, on my MagView, um, I, I had another uh, uh, ring because I wanted to leave the ring on my on my Swaro 65. Um, I could have just taken it off and put it on my spotter, but I've got two of them. So I just put the new one on the ATC, went right on. Um, the MagView comes with spacer rings. That's how you're able to get it to adapt to the different spotters. I had to switch out a spacer ring, but it went right on. Nice fit. So I got to use it twice. Super happy with it. I shot a reel for rock slide. It's probably going to be up in the next uh, few days. And so it got, what, th three days use. And then it was in my pack for, f I was home four days. And then I went out on this trip today. And so this morning, I get up on the ridge, got the country all in front of me where I'm in a glass. This is perfect country for a compact spotter. Because, you know, remember, this is, this is a 56 millimeter. It's not, it's not a big objective lens. It is a smaller scope. It's a 40 power, not a, not a 60 or a 50. So I planned this, this trip for this spotter because I was going to be doing some more kind of close in stuff, you know, mile to two mile type stuff. Get up on the ridge and I opened the flap on the, the MagView flap and uh, looked through the spotter. Oh, by the way, I'd seen some bucks across the basin. I was with my, I got my little Zeiss SFL 10s and um, I spotted them while I was standing and I'm like, oh man, I see a butt over there. It was just, just probably 10 minutes before sunrise. So, you know, still not dark, but you know, not bright light either. And so I got the spotter on them and it's like hazy. And I'm thinking, okay, this might be kind of the trade-off with a small spotter is you're just not going to have the light transmission ability of a bigger spotter. Well, that was like a five second thought. And then I start looking, I'm like, no, no, something's wrong here. Why is it so hazy? That's what it is. It's not dark, it's hazy. So I had my 15 
uh, Swaro's land there, my uh, the SLC 15 by 56. So I swapped them out onto the tripod. Clear as a bell. Man, I could see those bucks over there. By the way, there was no big ones. Um, and so I cut the spotter back up, and I'm looking through it. And, man, I just cannot figure out why it's so hazy. There's no there's no fog on the lens. You know, I'm looking. The lens are clean. And about the, messing around for five, ten minutes, the, 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 the sun started to come up over the ridge. And I, so I could shine the sun down in the, in the objective lens. And, man, it, it looked like hard water spots. Not on the objective, but one or two lenses in. You know, if you turn a spotting scope around and you look down inside of them into the guts, you know, you can see multiple lenses. Now, it's not hard water. There's no way. You know, you'd have to put that in a sprinkler. And, 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 and I never got the scope wet. But, but that's the best way I can s- describe it. It's like a rough-looking film, kind of whitish. And I, I don't know what it is. I have no idea. Well, I sat there, you know, I glassed for four hours this morning, and luckily I had my 15s. The bucks are only, you know, 2,000 yards away. I could I could see fine through my 15s. And I, I laid that spotter out in the sun. I have fog spotters before and, and, and optics before, and the first thing I usually do is get them in the sun and get them dried out if it's internal fogging. Well, it's not internal fogging. It never changed. And so, Swaro, I love you guys, but, man... It's it something's wrong. I've already sent them an email. I sent them an email from Mountaintop. Um, I, I know they'll I know they'll fix it. I, I don't have any worries on it. But man, what a bummer to have a fail right right out of the gate. And uh, I'll I'll report back. Let you guys know what they say when they get it back. I. I don't want to take the blame, but maybe I did do something, but I can't imagine. It's been used three days, no no drops, no no wet weather. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened, so totally bummed. And um, uh, anyways, I keep saying the ATC because uh, I'm running the angled. Um, that's because I, – I, you know why I like angled? Because it gives you about two or three more inches on, on a compact tripod because it's it's up. You know, it angles up. And so um, I, I use um, a small day pack on a lot of my hikes. And so I just run a small uh, slick 624, and it's not tall enough for some situations. But by running an angled spotting scope, you can gain a couple more inches. But I'll never argue with the guys that are running the straight spotters. You're right. They are easier easier to, 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 to get on target. Um, I get all that. Um, but for me, it's a pretty good trade-off. What the bummer is, is going from an angled and then swapping your binos out onto your tripod. A lot of guys don't realize that you have to adjust your column up and down. It, it just takes seconds. It's not a big deal. Um, uh, but when I, when I ordered the ATC, Ryan said I could get either the, the straight or the angled. I went with the angled. And um, so if they get this thing working again, though, I, you know, I, had, I had to give you the, the, the ugly part of it. The three times I got to use it, phenomenal. I have not looked through uh, another compact spotter. That, that gave that viewing experience that that one did. So um, hopefully we can get it fixed. Um, I'm sure they'll fix it. I know they'll fix it. I guess what I'm hoping is they can do it before uh, we're too far into the season. Um, they've, they've, had, they've had issues like everybody with supply chains and everything, and um, they haven't been as fast as they used to be, but ho- hopefully they will. They're going to feel bad. They're going to feel real bad. They, they do not like to see their stuff. Uh, have problems but uh anyways that's how it is so 
That's everything for right there. I'm going to take you into my book today. We're going to be reading uh, Hunting Big Mule Deer, How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. I hope you guys are enjoying the audio option of my book. I've had people for years tell me, hey, please do an audible. Uh, I just haven't had time to do an audible and uh, you think it would be simple, but I just have not had time. So here's your audible. And the good news is, is it's free if you listen to the Rockcast. Um, and uh, for those of you guys that have picked up my book, uh, thank you very much. And uh, Amazon also has a review uh, option. If you buy it from Amazon, you'll get an email about a week after you buy the book and uh, asking for review. That might be a little soon uh, for them to send it out, but I think they're just trying to remind you. If you found value in the book, please review it on Amazon. That that just helps, okay? If you didn't find value, go ahead and leave me a review too. I read them all. But, um, you know, especially for, for you guys that are, you know, getting a hold of me on Instagram through Rockslide that are telling me enjoy the book. Oh, man, just take a couple minutes, you know, a sentence or two of, of what you liked and uh, post that up on Amazon. I'd really appreciate that. So, moving into hunting big mule deer how to take the best buck of your life here we go the rock cast is powered by onyx hunt the number one hunting gps app in the industry join the millions of hunters who trust onyx to find more game discover new access and hunt smarter some of the key features of onyx are the ability to combine critical land data with on the ground exploration to build your perfect map and find success all your save markups sync automatically to all devices for use in the field or from home. Onyx includes nationwide public and private land boundaries. Hunt with confidence and find new opportunities using color-coded public land maps, private parcel ownership information, and clearly marked boundaries. Mark locations crucial to your hunt with custom waypoints. Measure distances of your walk-in, shot across canyon, or distance to the nearest access point with lines. View maps in 3D and choose satellite, topo, or hybrid base maps to have the best, easy-to-read visual for your hunt. Go as far from the grid as you want. No cell service required. Save detailed maps, layers, and markups for offline use. With live tracking and current location features, you'll make it out and back just like you planned. Don't risk getting turned around or lost. So if you're ready to make the jump to Onyx, use the code ROCKCAST at checkout and save yourself 20%. Big picture research. With a reality-based perspective, I'm ready to choose units where I have a chance of getting a license. I call this process big picture research because a state unit or area is just the big picture. Here are the resources I use to paint the big picture. State game departments. The founders of America had a great vision to allow states to self-govern in many public matters, and wildlife management is one of those. If you decide that hunting beyond your state lines is an advantage, you'll see every state has a different approach to management that might give you an advantage. Even if you decide to hunt in-state, assuming you have mule deer, you need to know how to properly research your own state. I find too many resident hunters don't fully understand even their own state's management enough to research areas where big mule deer hunting is best. The following is how I research the big picture using the various state game departments. Biologist. Big game biologists, or specifically mule deer biologists, are still great resources. If they've been in their position for more than five years, they can go way beyond the road information the guy in fisheries also knows. Some departments have only young, inexperienced biologists on the front line talking to the public. Don't be rude, but try to determine whether you're talking to the most experienced person there. I've been lucky enough to know several career biologists with 30 years of experience. 
These guys are incredible if you can find one. Even if you can't find the old gray-haired biologist whose retirement party is next week, you'll still learn a lot talking to someone who manages mule deer for a living. When I call a biologist, I always tell them I'm researching some hunts in his area and ask whether it's a good time to talk. I don't want to bother him at a time he's rushed. I'd rather call back later and catch him when he's in the mood. These guys and gals are often under deadlines, especially in the spring when management strategies are being developed, so be courteous. During the conversation, if they mention a place to hunt, I note it, but also remember that they will likely tell a dozen other hunters the same information. More important, I'm interested in a few numbers and always ask for them. Because I'm looking for older, bigger deer, I'm less concerned about success rate. High success rates usually equates to hunter crowding or low draws. And total population, huge bucks can come from low populations of deer. Instead, I always ask two things. Is there a measure of mature bucks in the harvest? And what is the post-hunt buck-to-doe ratio? Number one is not widely publicized for deer, especially on general seasons. Typically, that number is reserved for horned animals like sheep, but some states do measure it for deer and other antlered animals. In most states, I've found biologists who measure it one way or another. If he knows what it is, he will usually be glad to tell you. It's like a badge of honor to him, and he'll be impressed that you're asking someone beyond, where should I apply? Looking at mature buck harvest is a backwards way of finding big deer in statistics. Usually hunters look at population numbers and buck to doe ratios, which are measures of what the future may hold. Measuring mature bucks in the harvest is how bear and lion biologists work. Because those predators are hard to count accurately, just like big bucks, those biologists rely on harvest information such as tooth samples, certain body measurements, or weight to predict how many older age class animals are in the herd. Hey, I really did see a herd of bears once. Studying a measure of mature bucks in the harvest is the same thing. If you're seeing a stable trend in antler size in the harvest, then it's safe to assume that will continue if all of the things such as weather, access, and hunter numbers remain the same. If that, hunter, if that number is higher than in other units, you might just be onto something. For example, Idaho tracks the percentage of four points and five points in the harvest. I've learned over many years that if you can find an area that has around 40% of the harvest as four-point bucks, the unit will have enough older mature deer to make it worth a try. As I said, it has to be stable. You can't have 40% one year and 20% the next year if conditions are the same. As that might indicate the bucks are being over-harvested or it's a weather-dependent hunt. Limited draw hunts in good units will often exceed 80%, but I think that is partly because hunters in draw units are pickier. However, you can still watch for the trends. The second statistic I'm interested in is buck-to-doe ratios. Every state measures these numbers as they are readily available when counting deer from the air or ground. With higher ratios, there are just plain more bucks in the population and a better chance they'll reach maturity. However, it doesn't have to be high to produce great bucks. Idaho manages for 15 bucks per hunter does in general seasons. Most of our units exceed that number. I've seen huge bucks in units with as low as 15, but I'd rather hunt where there are 20 to 35 bucks per hunter does. Keep in mind though, the higher the ratio, typically the harder it is to get a tag or access. Well-managed private property usually has higher ratios. Utah manages around 18 bucks per hunter does, while Colorado often measures for 30 to 40 buck to doe ratios, even in units where licenses are easy to obtain. 
a testament that Colorado is truly the West Mule Deer factory. I hunted a Colorado unit this year and that posts around 30 bucks per hunter does and had no problem finding big mature bucks. Sign up for emails. A good way to stay current on a state's mule deer management is to subscribe to their email notifications. You can be among the first to learn anything that might help your success. Right now I'm planning to apply for a new hunt that isn't even listed in the magazines yet simply because I subscribe to these services. Also by subscribing you can even participate in some states public meeting process even as a non-resident. Many states understand the information age and know that inviting people to participate in a public meeting even remotely will give them a bigger sample size to draw conclusions from. Every time I log in on one of these meetings, I learn something that will help me find my next big mule deer. Find the pilot. I've met only one biologist who was also a pilot. Most departments hire a pilot to fly the biologist over winter range and summer range in some cases to count deer. These pilots can log hundreds of hours looking over some of the West's best mule deer herds. Those I've met aren't hunters, so they don't really have anything to lose by sharing information. There was one helicopter pilot I met that had flown much of Idaho on deer and elk surveys. I asked him if he'd noticed any certain place that there was better than others for really big deer. Sure, that country from the interstate to the state line always seems to always have the biggest bucks. Not as many bucks as other places we go, but certainly the biggest I've seen. That's coming from a guy who's looked at thousands of bucks all over the state. Talk about a hot tip. While the country he mentioned covered well over 100 square miles, since he told me that 15 years ago, several giant deer have come out of those units, and I have seen and hunted a few myself. Rumor has it that Idaho might be offering a new rut hunt in one of those units. Odds are I'll be applying. Another pilot told me that in one mountain range he flies for the department, he's never seen bigger than an average four-point. While it may grow bigger deer, I can safely ignore it and focus my limited time on country where some bruisers have been seen. While these pilots can be very hard to find, if you run across one, don't be nosy, pushy, or rude, but ask a few questions and see what happens. You might get lucky. Forums and other social media. Though they've been around since the late 80s, forums really took off around 2005. Basically, a forum is just a big cocktail party for hunters conducted online in mostly public format. A good forum allows you to interact with other hunters all around the country. You can really get a feel for a new area, find specifics about where to hunt, plan logistics, and in some cases, hook up with a new hunting buddy. Although forums can be very helpful in planning your mule deer hunts, they do have limitations. Because I've been an owner of a forum and a member of a forum, I can give you a solid perspective and some tips. By nature, people aren't going to give away the areas they've worked hard to learn. That is okay, as many of us DIY guys like the challenge of learning an area, but you still may need, may need a leg up in choosing a unit. Here's a tip on interacting on forums. Most forums have what is called a post counter. This is a number displayed near your screen name that shows how many times you've posted on the site. Because forums are really just communities, someone with a low post count might not be considered part of the crowd just yet. Forums aren't as anonymous as you might think, and if it's a good community, members will learn about each other and form bonds. When using forums to look for information on where to hunt, don't just jump on and start asking questions. The members will spot you like a fly in the punch bowl and likely won't be as helpful as they are with someone who's been a participating member of the community.
Learn to give before you take. Help others with their questions and offer personal insight on subjects you know well. Only then is it acceptable and effective to ask for help yourself. In 2009, I unexpectedly drew a Montana general deer tag for my first time applying. Montana allows rifle rut hunts on their general tag. At the time, it took about three to five years to draw, so I hadn't done a lot of research. When I received notification, I posted on monstermuleys.com, where I'd been a participating member for years. I posted this question. I drew a Montana general tag and would like to hunt an area that has at least the potential to grow a 200-inch buck. My research has narrowed down the state to the northwest corner or some of the units in the southern portion of the state. While I got the typical, there ain't no 200-inch bucks in Montana, you fool responses, I did get one from a nice fellow who knew of some tough-to-hunt areas where a few people ventured and occasionally kicked out 200-inch bucks. He offered to help me if I was ever in the area, and I agreed to do the same if he ever got down to my way. Well, I don't look gift horses in the mouth, and a short few months later, I planned a scouting trip to the area and met him for dinner, which I bought. Before you knew it, we were planning a hunt together. On November 23rd, after six days of hunting, I killed a heavy antlered buck that was later lab-aged at six years old. Besides that, though, the Montana guy and I formed a great friendship and are looking forward to hunting together again one of these days. Trevor Carlson and I have become good friends, and if I'd not met him, I never would have killed a big mule deer in a general tag area on my very first year on the ground. The web now allows us to connect with other hunters like never before, and that can give you an advantage of finding good places to hunt, an advantage that no one had just a decade ago. Learn to participate in helpful forums and other social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you might get lucky just as I did. Volunteer. If you live in a mule deer state or close to one, you might consider volunteering for the various projects and programs offered by the state game departments and conservation organizations. To my knowledge, every state has one. The Mule Deer Foundation hosts projects where volunteers are needed. Volunteering to work in mule deer country not only helps you learn about good places to hunt, it puts you in direct contact with professionals and hunters who are knowledgeable about mule deer. These same people are usually very passionate about mule deer and you'll learn much that can be applied to your own success. Even though I'm an Idaho native and grew up in some of the best Boone and Crockett deer country in the West, I chose to join Idaho's volunteer program. I signed up in the early 90s. At the time, I was probably thinking I'd be cruising the winter range in a Super Cub counting big bucks, but I soon found out the check station was the place for the newbies. I also found out that I was expected to be there during deer season. I worked out a schedule so I could still hunt and meet my commitments. At the check station, I'd help the biologist collect teeth, take certain measurements, and find out where the deer were killed. While I'm sure some of the hunters lied about where they killed their bucks, some were so excited or intimidated by the badges, many of them told me exactly where they killed them. I know they were telling the truth because later I scouted and confirmed big bucks lived in the areas they'd mentioned. Besides giving back to my sport, I also connected with many of the best big game biologists and wardens out there. When they saw I was willing to donate my own time, they were more than helpful when I had questions. One year, one of the game wardens I met, Lou Huddleston, offered to take me on a tour of his area and show me where he'd seen many good bucks, both alive and taken by hunters. I was sitting in his pickup before you could say big mule deer. Lou took me on his route for a day. Even though I'd hunted in his area, he showed me many places that held big deer that I had no clue about. 
That was 15 years ago, and I still haven't scouted all the places he showed me. Just last year, an Idaho hunter killed a huge 230 buck in one of the areas we visited that day. Two years ago, a friend showed me a picture of a 200-inch live desert buck from the same area. I'd say my volunteering paid off in spades. I stayed with the volunteer program about eight years before I started my family and finally just had to give it up because of time commitments. However, I look forward to the day when I can start volunteering again. Some states like Utah also have volunteer programs where you can get special hunting privileges if you volunteer a certain amount. You'll have to research the opportunities, but trust me when I say you'll get back more than you give. Research services. Over the last decade or so, a few services have popped up that you can, it can actually do a lot of research for you. Some are so good at the big picture part of the research equations that they cannot be ignored. In fact, I saved writing about them until now as they can provide much of the information I've already written about. Many hunters grumble about these services and say they have ruined the draw odds for good hunts. I'd say the information area ruined the draw odds and these services are just a symptom of the volume of information that's available to today's hunter. Some hunters wonder whether these services are worth the cost. 20 years ago, a big buck hunter was paying $100 to $200 a month in long-distance charges to the phone company to research areas. Now, for a tenth of that cost, you can access the same or better information from a good research service. Like information on anything, it's become cheaper than it was just a few short years ago. As of press time, the Hunt and Fool has an office full of consultants whose full-time job is to find areas where the best bucks and bulls and antelope and moose are coming from. It is very hard to find out anything that these guys don't already know. They also publish lists of hunters who've already hunted a unit you're interested in, a resource that is more valuable than you can imagine compared with what I had to do just 20 years ago to get a good intel. There are other services out there, including Eastman's, Go Hunt, and Epic Outdoors. I'm a happily married dad of three active kids, and I hold down about three jobs, so it's difficult to make time to learn everything I need to know. As a mule deer hunter, I need to hunt about 25 to 40 days per year to be successful on big bucks. It takes lots of research and time to find areas where spending my time in applications. About 10 years ago, I came to the conclusion that research services were worth it, and I got on the bandwagon. They are certainly worth the money when it comes to painting your big picture. You can also check out rockslide.com to see what's available there. Western States Overview As no mule deer book would be complete without a snapshot of current opportunity, I'll share my personal thoughts on the subject while we're still on big picture research. However, keep in mind that mule deer are in flux and the information changes every 5 to 10 years, so you always need to stay current on issues affecting mule deer. Idaho being born and raised here and still living within about a mile of the house I grew up in, you could say I haven't made it very far in life. That's okay by me, as I still live in some of the West's best mule deer country. For all its downsides, wolves, non-refundable license, high-priced deer tags, poor draw odds, the gem state also has lots of upsides. The most backcountry of any western state, general OTC hunts with good bucks available, draw hunts where everyone has an equal chance, relatively long seasons, a second deer tag, and genetics for big deer second only to Colorado. Many hunters make a few mistakes when considering Idaho. They hear we have a wolf problem, which we do, and they apply that to the entire state. I'd say most deer units are not being affected significantly by wolves as of press time. Hunters also hear our success rate is low. It is, but that is by design. 
as few rifle opportunities exist during the rut compared with states such as Colorado and Montana where most of the rifle hunts occur close to or in the rut. In the early 1990s, our Fish and Game Department moved most OTC hunts to October dates well before the influence of the rut. This did two things. One, made the hunting tougher. Two, increased survival for bucks. I learned from now-retired Idaho biologist Ted Chu that for hunters, perception is too often reality. What he meant is that if we go deer hunting in October and don't see a good buck, we assume they don't exist. Big mistake, guys. When you are hunting October bucks that move little and stay in the cover, you won't see them often, but they are still around. Just look down. Something made those big tracks. For example, between me and the two other guys who scout Idaho for my company, We Scout For You, we see 10 to 20 bucks yearly between 170 and 190 inches across Idaho, mostly in OTC units. I usually kill or at least have a chance at a 180 inch or better buck yearly somewhere in Idaho. Another advantage is its late application deadline of June 5th. A Western hunter can play the New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, on some years, and Montana draws before committing to Idaho. There is no sense in having too many tags. You won't do a good job on any of them if you're spread too thin. Another unique opportunity Idaho provides is its unlimited hunts. These are hunts that have some advantage over the OTC hunts, whether it's hunting a unit with a higher buck-to-doe ratio, rut dates, or archery muzzleloader only. The term unlimited means if you apply, you will draw. However, the OTC hunters can't hunt those units, so pressure drops. Unlimited hunts are a guaranteed draw and allow you to apply for a good draw tag as your first choice. Keep in mind, Idaho's late rifle hunts are some of the hardest to draw in the West with odds often below 4%. I've killed most of my good bucks in Idaho, not only because I live here, but also because I can hunt here every year. As a multi-weapon hunter, I can hunt mule deer from mid-August to the end of December. This tips the odds in my favor and is why I think Idaho brings stability to your hunting strategy. You can hunt every year and develop your hunt, buck hunting skills. After all, after all, it is ultimately your skills that make you successful. Idaho will require all you've got in glassing, tracking, still hunting, and patience. You need to have a long-term plan for hunting Idaho, and if at all possible, you need to scout. You will likely get skunked the first few trips. You have to learn your country and hunt hard and smart and hunt enough days. I hunt an average of 20 days yearly in Idaho and still don't kill a good buck every year. Seasons are long enough that you can hunt a week, about the max for most hunters considering vacation time and mental energy, and still come back, taking advantage of what you learned. If your deer hunting strategy is like an investment portfolio, then Idaho is a good, slow-growth mutual fund. It needs some time to perform. Utah. The Beehive State lies just 100 miles south of my home, so it's always on my radar, although to date I've only had one buck license there, and saw three pretty darn good bucks on that hunt, including a heavy 33-incher, not including cheaters. Utah has incredible genetics for mule deer, and is probably in the top two or three places on the continent with the potential to grow giant mule deer. A few decades ago, Utah boasted over a quarter million mule deer licenses sold. Consequently, Utah has deeply ingrained mule deer culture, which is evidenced by the fact that Brian LeTurner's MonsterMuleys.com, Ryan Hatch's Mealy Crazy Magazine, Rusty Hall's The Trophy Hunter, and The Research Services, The Hunt and Fool, and Epic Outdoors were all born in Utah. I can also say that some of the most serious hunters I've met in the woods across the West have hailed from Utah. When it's in your blood... 
Utah has many opportunities for big mule deer, but like Idaho, the best hunts are very difficult to draw. Utah was a pioneer in creating top-end mule deer draw units starting well over 25 years ago. Places including including the Ponsagot and the Henry Mountains have been managed for decades for giant mule deer, and the plan has met with success, growing some of the biggest bucks in modern times. Antelope Island was closed to hunting for decades and now offers a few buck permits for the giants that roam the island. However, getting a license in any of these places is next to impossible for a DIY hunter, even for primitive weapon hunts. Utah may start kicking out some bigger mule deer on a statewide basis in the near future as this recently changed its management plan to manage mule deer herds on an individual basis rather than on a statewide basis. I've learned over the decades that some mule deer herds respond quickly to just a little bit of management and big bucks can show up in just a few short years where previously there were hardly any. Other places can be managed intensely and respond slowly or not at all, which will certainly be the case in Utah in some areas. If you live in or close to Utah, don't get the grass is greener syndrome I wrote about earlier, as I'd be willing to bet there are big mule deer living much closer to you than you might think. Just this last fall, I learned of several true giants that have come from some of the newly managed units. Utah has both a bonus point system for the high quality limit entry hunts and a preference point system for the general hunts. I don't think you're wasting time at least researching what Utah has to offer. New Mexico. I've never hunted New Mexico, but did scout there once. The enchanted state certainly has big mule deer and the genetics to grow absolute toads. However, outside the few high-quality limit entry units that post draws under 5% and the Hickorya Indian Reservation, which is one of the best places in the West to kill a giant mule deer, I'd rate New Mexico as best for a resident or a hunter living close to its borders. Like all states, not all the big bucks live in the draw units, and the persistent hunter who can scout could turn up some very big bucks. New Mexico recently cut its quota on non-resident mule deer hunters in the limited draw units, so I quit applying. I've got better opportunities closer to home, but you may not. If that is the case, look at New Mexico. Don't overlook the September muzzleloader hunts, as that can be a prime time to kill a big buck you've scattered up during the summer. According to some of... Some in the know, poaching of big mule deer is so rampant in New Mexico that no matter how well managed, the best bucks will often go to poachers. A very sad state of affairs indeed. Montana. Montana isn't widely known for big bucks, but like all states, a little scouting can up those odds. Montana offers a very liberal general rifle hunt almost statewide that runs into November, a time when bucks are very vulnerable. I have no problem with people hunting bucks in the rut, which is allowed for all big game species, but when it's allowed on a wide scale with almost low, no limit to hunting pressure, big bucks will be few and far in between. I live close to Montana, so I've scouted and hunted there. I killed a really good buck for Montana my very first trip up there, but that was because of diligent scouting and knowing someone in the area who would help me. I thoroughly enjoyed hunting in the rut taking my big buck on November 23rd as I still hunted through an area littered with big tracks and rubs. I shot him at 70 yards as he cruised the timber looking for hot does. He later lab aged at six years old, proof that big bucks can survive heavily hunted areas if there is enough cover and terrain to hide in. Even with thousands of licenses sold in the area I was hunting, I saw almost no hunters once we got into the deer country that was several miles from the road. The treasure state also 
has a few high-quality draw hunts, but the non-resident odds are so terrible, applying is an exercise in futility. A few years after I hunted Montana, they upped the general tag to 600 bucks, and they started squaring points, so I dropped out. The general, general deer is just not worth that much considering the size of bucks Montana offers versus what I'm seeing in other states. Also, I didn't have enough points to take advantage of the new square formula. Squaring really helped only non-residents with lots of points, so I just put the money back in my budget and left my points on the table. I have a good friend in Montana who I love to hunt with, so I may return someday if my schedule and budget allow. There is more to hunting than just big antlers. Finding a friend you like to hunt with is a trophy in and of itself. Oregon. If you dig through Boone and Crockett's all-time record books, you will notice that some of the biggest non-typicals ever have come from the Beaver State. Oregon isn't managed well. You'll hear hunters and guides both say that you can tell when you've crossed the state line into Idaho because the bucks, the big bucks are suddenly bigger. While the big buck genetics still exist in the herd, few really big bucks are taken by DIY hunters in Oregon. There are a few draw units that kick out big deer if you get beyond the nearly impossible non-resident draw odds. Oregon almost seems to have a disdain for DIY non-resident hunters if you look at the opportunity that we are offered there. I'd rank Oregon like I do New Mexico, a decent state for a resident or someone living very close to the best deer country, which is in the eastern half of the state. For years, I also built points in Oregon. Unfortunately, I never really understood their non-resident cap, which is extremely low at 5%. Before draws got really bad these last 10 years, I was probably getting my money's worth as their license was only about 80 bucks. However, with worsening draw odds, a license jumped to 140, and Oregon's policy of giving its outfitters the non-residence tags every other year in units I was interested in, I dropped out. I even wrote their game and fish commission a goodbye letter, which they promptly responded to in an effort to keep me. It was too late. I left five points, over 500 bucks, and a lot of research on the table, but I've never looked back. Simply not enough value for the dollar to keep applying. If I lived in Oregon, I know I could fare better as I could scout and resonant draw odds aren't as bad. Wyoming. Wyoming is the, the top of the list for big deer, even with the potential uh, decline over, a lot over the last 10 years. While Wyoming limits non-residents, residents can hunt much of the state on a general tag, so pressure is high. Western Wyoming got hit with two bad winters, 2007 eight and 2010 11. that might sound like a while ago but mule deer are still hurting even with the lasting effects wyoming is still a good value to me most years because i live so close i can be there in about an hour this allows me to scout and hunt frequently and is the reason some of my best deer have come from the cowboy state while the high country of western wyoming gets all the press and all the pressure there are still vast reaches of wyoming real estate that hold good bucks where getting a license is no problem i know of an absolute giant of a buck that rivals any from the west top draw odds draw units killed just two seasons ago in a general unit by an average guy who'd done his scouting with the lowest human population in the nation, there is plenty of available room for hunters willing to work for a buck. Big mule deer can come from any part of the cowboy state. Wyoming started a non-resident preference point system just a few years ago and was one of the last western states to do so. The top hunts were almost immediately clogged with top point holders who still may never draw a tag in their lifetimes. Wyoming does reserve 25% of its licenses in a random draw where licenses are drawn regardless of points. As of press time, the preference point system works well for the decent hunts that are lower in demand, but isn't much good for the really high demand hunts. Colorado. 
I receive more questions on Colorado than any other Western state. Rightly so. Colorado has always held the number one rank in Boone and Crockett mule deer entries, typical and non-typical. Although the Centennial State started to slip in the 90s, after limited quota hunting was implemented in 1999, Colorado again secured its rank at the top of the heap. Just last year, a hunter by the name of Brett Ross killed a buck in a non-trophy unit that scored close to 300 Boone and Crockett. Who says mule deer are down for the count? I started hunting Colorado in 1993 and have seen and taken some of my best bucks there. While many states struggle to maintain 20 bucks per hunter does, Colorado frequently reports buck to doe ratios north of 30, even in units with lots of licenses. The state is simply a mule deer machine. Add to that Colorado's generous non-resident quota of 35%, 20% in units where residents need six points to draw, a true preference point system, affordable application feeds, a tag refund policy, transferable landowner tags, and the chance to hunt while building points, you might think it's mule deer heaven come lately. So with all the hype, should you be hunting there? Well, this goes back to some of my earlier comments about time and budget. If you live close to other mule deer country that holds your gold buck, Colorado may just be a distraction. I've learned to focus on my home state of Idaho, but I look to Colorado for opportunity I can't find closer to home. Colorado probably should be on your list as a place to hunt, but don't be enamored with her reputation. Big deer are earned there, and there aren't any shortcuts. Here are some of the obstacles you must overcome to be successful. Lots of people, and I don't just mean hunters. Colorado is one of the country's, fa country's fastest growing states. Everywhere I've hunted in Colorado, I found it hard to be alone. If you think packing into a vast wilderness far from roads will mean seclusion, think again. Case in point, I found some bucks summering in a high country basin in July one year. When I returned for the hunt in September, no less than 15 tents were set up in the basin, and not one was a hunter. Those bucks had long been spooked out of that area. Lots of private property issues. Much of the best habitat, especially for the rifle seasons, is on private land. A smart hunter can use this to his advantage, but many are caught off guard if they haven't thoroughly researched their unit. Because of the Texan influence over many decades, much of the best ground is leased, and a smile and a handshake won't get you anywhere. Point creep. Since Colorado began limiting its deer licenses, this phenomenon has turned many units, even some that offer just mediocre hunting, into once-in-a-lifetime-at-best draw hunts. I know of several that used to take just one point to draw and offered good hunting. Now they take nearly 20 points, although the hunting is no better than it ever was. This problem is only going to get worse in the near future. Point banking tried in 2006 would help, but it would take three to five years to work and too many hunters oppose it right now. Overlapping deer and elk seasons. While you might draw a good deer tag, your hunt will still likely be negatively affected by OTC elk hunters. Colorado hosts the West's biggest elk herd and a mind-boggling number of elk hunters in most units. I've hunted units where I've seen few deer hunters, but there were elk camps in every turnout and a meadow. A smart hunter learns to work with the elk hunters, but don't be deceived. They do influence the hunt quality. A highly migratory deer herd. While you might find some great bucks summering in Colorado's high country, unless you possess a muzzleloader, archery, or high country rifle tag, most of the bucks above 11,000 feet will have moved miles by the time September and October rifle hunts open. Scouting can be a frustrating endeavor for these bucks, and they just aren't around once the later seasons open. So all things considered, do I recommend Colorado? Yes. I think if a hunter gives himself five to ten years, he could take a great buck and possibly several. However, he needs to prepare himself physically and mentally for the challenge listed above. 
Nevada. As the Western hunters evolve these last 20 years, many have decided a state line is no longer a boundary to success. This has worsened rods, and Nevada is no exception. I sampled four mule deer hunts from around the state, comparing simple draws from 1998 to 2013. The odds of drawing decreased by almost 50%. Does this mean a buck hunter shouldn't look at the silver straight? That depends on your personal budget of time and money and your goals. Nevada is certainly a great state for mule deer hunters. The entire state is on a draw system and it's managed conservatively in most units. With fewer hunters in the field, higher buck-to-doe ratios, and a pretty fair bonnet points system, Nevada is certainly an attractive option. You do, however, need to consider the entire cost of drawing a tag and that big deer are hard to kill no matter the state or the unit. Nevada has been touted as having the fairest point system in the West. As long as you lay down the $150 for their license, you will receive a bonus point for the next draw. For subsequent years, that bonus point will be squared. You also have five choices in Nevada, but you lose all bonus points for drawing any choice, which helps the draw odds. You can receive a tag refund if you can't go, or let them keep your money and get your points back, plus earn one for sitting out. Despite these upsides, Nevada is still subject to point creep, and their system is expensive unless you draw in the first few years of applying. Each year I talked to lots of hunters sitting on 10 plus Nevada points who are very frustrated. When they got in the game, many good deer tags were drawn with that many points, but now 10 is just a start. These hunters have thousands invested with no end in sight. Even if they do draw, most will not see or kill the size of buck they think their money and time investment warrant. Many folks think that a pile of points will guarantee a certain size of deer. Truth be told, points don't guarantee anything anywhere. No matter how well a state is managed, older bucks are hard to kill. You have to scout and hunt smart to kill a good buck. If you live close enough to Nevada to learn the unit well, your odds of getting your money's worth go up substantially. Nevada is a good option if you're willing to hunt the earlier rifle and primitive weapon seasons as they are easier to draw. With any limited draw, make sure you study the draw odds and pick your units carefully. If you're chasing the premium hunts and don't have 10 or more points, statistically you're in for a long wait and even more expense. Nevada does have a transferable landowner tag system. The tags are typically very expensive but allow you to hunt all the seasons on the unit for deer. Arizona. Some places draw a mule deer hunter like a kid to a soda pop. Arizona is that place for me. Per tag issued, nowhere else is producing more giant deer than the country north of the Colorado River. The Big Ditch, as it's called. I've never hunted Arizona, save a February quail hunt once. But to me, Arizona is the essence of a southwestern mule deer hunt. Juniper sage, oak, ponderosa, remote deserts, and a chance at a truly giant buck. Arizona, like Nevada, manages many of its deer herds conservatively. Arizona adopted the Alternative Deer Management Plan in 1995. The plan identified units that should be managed to harvest bucks in the range of three to five plus years old. This bold management plan has met success, but with both positive and negative effects. The positive is that some units are now producing bucks that have not been seen since the heyday of mule deer in the 1950s. A culture of big deer hunters has now arisen, and every summer some of the top outfitters and guides start their search for giant mule deer north of the Colorado River. They kill some of the biggest deer on the continent, with several bucks grossing over 300 inches just in the last few years. A few hardworking and knowledgeable DIY hunters take some giants too. The odds are stacked against the DIY hunter, as there are lots of eyes, ears, planes, and trail cameras focused on the best units. The negative side is draw odds. In several units, as a non-resident, there is zero chance of drawing a tag unless you have the maximum points. 
The Hunt and Fool predicts that it will take around 30 years for a non-resident with even two points less than the maximum to enter the pool of applicants who have a chance at drawing. Then he still may never draw once in the max pool. Too much demand for too few licenses. Unless I become a resident of Arizona, I will never experience the premier hunts. However, there are hunts where I do have a chance. I'll have to choose a primitive weapon season or a non-rut hunt, or hunt, hunt somewhere south of the Colorado River. But at least I'll get to scratch my itch to hunt the Grand Canyon State. I have no grand visions of strolling into a unit and tipping over a 200-inch buck in one hunt. Based on the last 25 years of my deer hunting career, I'm more likely to kill one of those in the less popular units I can hunt more often. If you're not a max point holder, you'll be better off to spend your time in other Arizona units that offer big mule deer. Last fall, a hunter killed a giant buck close to the Mexico border in a unit few people pay attention to. Like in all states, big mule deer can fall to any persistent hunter outside of the premium units. If you're contemplating hunting bucks in Arizona, you'll have to plan and hunt smart. Consider, too, that antler growth in many herds is determined by rainfall and can be affected by 20% in a bad year. That means a 200-inch buck becomes a 160 buck. With hard work, you could realistically find 180 bucks in a few years of scouting units where you have a decent chance at a tag. If you are an Arizona resident, you have the opportunity to hunt some of the biggest deer on the planet, although draw odds are still long. Start planning now, help friends who've drawn, and get your deer hunting experience in other states while you wait. Other states. Notice I didn't mention Washington, California, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, or Texas, even though they all have mule deer and sometimes kick out incredible bucks. A Nebraska hunter recently killed a buck pushing 240. I don't offer advice on these states simply because I don't know much about them. However, if you live in these states or have good sources there, don't rule them out for hunting big mule deer. Hunting close to home can often bring the best results, and every one of those states has the potential to grow big mule deer in certain places. Beyond U.S. Borders Mule deer exist from the Tropic of Cancer in Old Mexico to, to the southern Yukon Territory. If you've got the money and time or live there, some huge bucks come from Canada and Mexico. Outfitters are the easiest and most expensive route, but due diligence is required. Canada aggressively manages mule deer in certain places and produces some tremendous bucks. Saskatchewan could be the best place outside of the top U.S. draw units to kill quality bucks, but non-residents are restricted to hunting with native outfitters on native land, so do your research and open your wallet. Alberta kicks out some tremendous mule deer yearly, but you'll have to go with an outfitter or hunt with a resident if you're not a resident. Old Mexico has produced some of the biggest desert mule deer on the continent, but has slipped in the last decade. There are some security issues and their management program is often subject to corruption, so it's not what it used to be. However, a few top outfitters continue to produce excellent bucks. Just a few weeks ago, I held a Mexican typical buck in my hands that grows close to 218 inches. From what I know about Mexico, you better plan on hunting multiple years, sounds like here, if you want to kill a really good buck. Someday, and Lord willing, I'd love to add a big desert mule deer to my collection. I just need my kids to start working good jobs so I can afford to go. Develop your application strategy. Now that you have the big picture painted, which states, areas, and units to consider, it's almost time to work on the small picture, where exactly you'll hunt in the unit. Before you start that process, you need to have an application strategy. Hunting more than one state, I've hunted up to three a year, can be confusing, as each state has its own system of license and tag distribution. You have to start a year ahead to make sure you're in good mule deer country come the following fall. 
From December through June is the application period for draw tags for the Western states. And you have to have a strategy in place or you'll miss deadlines, end up with conflicting hunts, and not end up with anything at all. You also have to make sure you have some OTC hunts to fall back on in the very likely event you won't draw a good tag. Develop a personal strategy that puts you in good deer country annually for as many days as possible. That word personal is very important. You're not like everyone else, nor do you want to be. You live in a certain place and have a certain amount of time and money. Like it or not, that is your starting point. If your neighbor's killing big bucks on expensive landowner tags in New Mexico, but you can't afford to play that game, that doesn't mean you can't be successful. You just have to do it differently. Develop a strategy that takes advantage of your strengths. If you have ample vacation, you can look all over the West for hunts. Or if you're a weekend warrior, focus on areas closer to home. I know one local deer hunter who rarely travels more than 50 miles and kills big deer every year from mountain peaks to the desert floor. Maybe he should be writing this book. I wrote about the importance of focus earlier and your application strategy must focus on your strength. For example, one of my favorite mule deer states recently planned a new high country rifle mule deer hunt in September in some of the West best giant buck country. I probably have enough points to draw, but I also know where a 215 inch non-typical Idaho buck has shown up for the last three seasons during the September archery hunt where a tag is guaranteed. I know the area he calls home very well, but know very, but no little about the new hunt other than the general mountain ranges. I have a hunting buddy in the new area who could probably help me. I'm torn between the two hunts and still not sure what I'll decide, but my strength probably lies in hunting the Idaho buck, assuming he survived the winter. Ah, what to do. My point is that big mule deer hunters better have an application strategy in mind if he wants to have the best shot at top end mule deer. Unlike the 80s, few areas produce them and you have to plan way ahead. Once you've developed your strategy, you have to treat it like you would an investment portfolio. After all, that's what it is, an investment in your hunting future. Just like an investment portfolio, conditions will change and require you to change your strategy, so you need to stay on top of factors that might change your strategy, like killer winners, new hunts, price increases or drops. I've even seen that happen too. As you develop your own strategy, make sure you understand reality when it comes to drawing really good tags. You simply can't rely on great draw tags to kill big mule deer. They're too hard to draw, and even if you do draw, you'll likely be very new to the area, and your odds of doing well are pretty slim. Here is the reality of today's draw odds, and a glimmer of hope if you just can't draw. Declining draw odds. The draw odds for quality tags have worsened significantly with the rise of the information age. I did a comparison of four of Idaho's muley draw hunts, two high-quality hunts, and two, two quality hunts. I looked at the total licenses, applications, and draw odds percentage in 1999 versus 2014. It's a sad story to say the least. In 1999, there were 400 tags available and 3,286 applicants and 12% draw odds. Fast forward to 2014 and 330 tags were available with 5,546 applicants and the 6% of hunters drew. While odds have always been low, they are dismal now. You will see very similar trends across the West for all good mule deer hunts. It's for this reason that a hunter wanting to take quality bucks cannot count on draw tags. Even with the various versions of point systems across the West, most will agree that they have not solved the problem of increasing demand. There are just too many of us wanting to hunt a few units. A wise hunter needs to view the high-quality Western draws as part of his application strategy, not the focus of it. I started playing the draws for mule deer 
in the early 1980s in my home state of Idaho. By 1991, I was applying for tags across the West. At one point, I was applying in nine Western states. I tracked every dollar I spent, and by 2010, decided that the return on investment was falling faster than my draw odds were improving. I also noted that in 25 years plus of applying, I'd drawn only one high-quality tag. I scouted the unit relentlessly and did kill a great buck. But during those decades, I'd also killed numerous good to great bucks on easy-to-obtain tags across the West in units I'd learned to hunt right. It was clear that my odds of killing great deer were better in the easier-to-get units. The realization changed everything. I'm currently applying six western states after dropping Montana, New Mexico, and Oregon because of the poor value per dollar spent. If my funds were not limited by budget, I may have stayed in, but really wouldn't expect a high-quality tag in my lifetime from those states. I'm now trying to focus on the units I've learned over the decades where I have a chance to hunt most years, even if it means switching weapons. Often ignored key to killing great bucks is being persistent enough to hunt a few years, even when you're not successful. You can only do that in units where you can get a tag at least every few years. My application strategies become like a well-diversified investment portfolio. I have a mix of application and high-demand units in Arizona, Utah, and Nevada, but I also apply for hunts I'll likely draw every other year or every year in Wyoming and Colorado and Idaho. Finally, I hunt Idaho's general seasons every year. I'll also buy landowner tags, but as of press time, I have never paid more than $1,000 for one. I spend up to 60 days per year scouting and hunting mule deer. That is my secret strategy if one exists, and one reason I choose to hunt only deer. If I maximize my time in units that have some good bucks, and many in every western state still do, I'll eventually get the drop on one. It's happened dozens of times and will happen again, Lord willing of course. It will happen for you too if you play your cards right. The Rockcast is also powered by MagView Gear. Step up your digiscoping game with the most streamlined digiscoping adapter in the industry. MagView pioneered a new era of digiscoping with its universal minimalistic spotting scope and binocular adapters. The system is designed to eliminate the frustrations and inconveniences found in traditional digiscoping systems. MagView's multifunctional system consists of three interchangeable designs, the S1 spotting scope adapter, the B1 binocular adapter, and the MagView phone plate. All MagView systems create an incredibly strong, stable, digiscoping platform and only require a super thin stainless steel plate adhered to the phone to secure it to the optic. No more bulky phone cases, no more optic-specific adapters. MagView is the digiscoping choice for minimalist hunters looking for one adapter to fit most in-class optics. Many Rockslide members and staff have chosen the MagView system. You can see our in-depth review at rockslide.com and the Rockslide YouTube channel. To discover more about MagView gear, visit magviewgear.com for full specification, installation videos, and tips and tricks. Start capturing your own MagView moments today. Okay, Rocksliders, that's the end of that big chapter on big picture research. Um, Knocked a lot out there. Uh, I wanted to lead up to well, it's probably more pertinent this time of year, which is your small picture research. So big picture research is basically the state, the unit, the area. And as I mentioned in the reading, a lot of guys never get beyond that. But the small picture stuff, the exact spots where you're going to find big mule deer, ridges, basins, canyons, those 
those are the places that make the difference. And, and so what I mean when a guy never gets beyond the big research, big picture research, yeah, he's in the right unit, but he's far from the best places. And that's, that's all that's left is, you know, the small picture stuff. This is the, the grind it out, learn it yourself kind of stuff. And uh, because the big picture stuff, that's just on the internet now. Um, that's, that's easy. That used to be hard. I remember how hard that was. And now that's easy. But you got to be able to get beyond that. So keep tuning into the Rockcast. I'll get into the small picture stuff on a future episode. And um, I also wanted to comment on some of that stuff I talked about in there. As I've said in previous podcasts, I wrote this book in 2014. So some of this information is dated. And so as I was talking about in there about having some OTC hunts to fall back on, that's not really an option for the most part now, especially if you're a non-resident, um, there's almost no OTC hunts out there. Um, and, um, getting worse and it's just, just how it is. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm always fighting for more opportunity as much as we can. And, and, um, but you know, the reality is, is there's less opportunity now than there was in 2014. But I, I would also, you know, kind of point out, there's less opportunity now than there was in 2014, but I would ask the question, is deer hunting any better than it was in 2014? Anybody want to raise their hand on that one? Because I don't think it is. And, and it, 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 I think it's more tied to weather myself. You know, we've gone through some hard winters and had some, uh, some drought and just some bad things for mule deer the last, you know, seven or eight years. Um, and then we combine that with states reducing especially opportunity for non-residents um it's harder now and uh i I think with favorable weather and things like that that could turn around in a hurry because i've seen it happen before you know we were we were in pretty tough shape in 2011 and by 2014-15 we were looking pretty good in a lot of places so um you know i'm always going to be leaning for more opportunity not not less uh and uh but and i'm I'm not saying I'm right, but I'm not saying I'm wrong either. But if you, if you stand back and look at the big picture, you know, we're offering less licenses or licenses are harder to get now than they were in 2014, and it has not improved deer hunting. So we always want to consider that. And um, so that's my commentary on my book there. Try to bring up speed on what's current and what's not. And uh, we'll see you on a future episode of the Rockcast. Good luck to everybody out there as we get closer to season.